out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. It's so true. Uh, this week is going to be the turn of the American guitarist, singer and songwriter Richard Lloyd, who is the uh, founder, founding member of the rock band Television from the 70s to the late 70s. And then various solo projects and albums and Lots of work with other people. Anyway, this is the interview, and um, yes, it's a bit quiet in places. We tried various ways of recording it and uh, communicating. It got a little bit sort of fraught at times, but we got there in the end. So just turn up your um, volume a little bit, but you'll hear it. And uh, he gives a huge amount of detail about the early years. Richard, let's go right back to that very, yes, the point where music became a big thing in your life, even when you were very young. Anyway, this is it. Richard, it's over to you. Well, we had a little baby piano when I was really little, uh, three or four, and I played that, but nobody in my family knew anything about music, so, and they couldn't afford, we were dirt poor in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and they could not afford to give me lessons, so I eventually played the little piano with my fists until I had smashed it up. The yes. next thing I remember is borrowing my stepdad's ukulele and playing it as a guitar with a quarter for a plectrum instead of uh, the big, they give you a big wool plectrum, and I that was like ridiculous. So I played the ukulele for a couple of years, not as a ukulele, but as a guitar, single melodies. Yes. And I got a guitar finally. I got, I played drums actually, and my, I got a drum kit by the time I was 16. Then at 17, I switched to guitar, and I got a Stratocaster, and that was my first guitar. Yeah. But television was my, the first band I was in. I had been woodshedding and biding my time until something interesting came along and uh it was i was in los angeles in 72 when i heard about the new york dolls and the mercer arts center so i decided to come back to new york and maybe that would be something that was going you know my way so on the way back we drove and on the way back uh while we were stopped in new orleans i got the news that the Mercer Arts Center had fallen down. The building had collapsed. So that was the end of that. And then I got to New York and I hung out in Max's, Kansas City, where I ran into a guy named Terry Ork, who had an empty room in his uh, loft down in Chinatown in New York. So I began, I was living there, and he said, he noticed that all I did all day was basically play the electric guitar with no amplifier. And he said, I know somebody else who does what you do. And I said, what do you think I do? What do you mean? He says, well, you play guitar all all by yourself. And this guy does too. But you want to go see him? And I said, well, no, not really. But let me know closer to the date. It turned out to be Tom Verlaine doing three songs unaccompanied on electric guitar at this supper club called Reno Sweeney's. And... Terry had been planning to get a band together because he worked for Andy Warhol. 
when he was uh, smitten with Warhol's relationship with the Velvet Underground. He wanted to form a band and have a uh, socialist social network built up around this band. And so when I saw Tom, he was going to put a band together around me. And I saw Tom and I thought that I could augment what Tom was doing and vice versa. You know, perfectly we would mesh. So basically he talked to Tom. Tom came down and uh, we played my electric guitar, passed it back and forth between us. He showed me a few things. I showed him a few things. We decided to try it. And uh, then we recruited Billy Thicker from, he was in Boston. We recruited him for drums and we convinced Richard Myers, me, Hell, Richard Hell, to play bass. Although he claimed he didn't want to play bass, he had done it before with Tom. It never worked out. It was like going to the dentist. He didn't want to do it, but I talked him into it, basically. Or we talked him into it. And we had the first incarnation of television. Then we needed to find a place to play. And Tom came down to rehearsal one day and said, I think I saw a place on the Bowery. Anybody want to go up and make, they're just openings. They're putting up the awning. Why don't you know somebody come up with me? So I said, I'd go. And we went up and there was Tilly uh, Crystal putting up the CBGB's awning. And he said, yes, he was going to have live music. And what did the, you know, he said the letters stood for country, bluegrass, and blues. And we said, oh, we're really, we're a rock band. He said, I'm not having rock. And he said, we said, we're not really loud, you know. We're different than anything you've heard. And he said, I mean, we play a little country, a little blues. So we would fit in. And so he said, he didn't say yes. And the next day, Ter- Terry Ork and I went up and talked him into it. And so basically, he gave us a Sunday, which Terry said, give us your worst day and I'll guarantee better bar sales than your, than your best day because I'm going to invite all alcoholics to come to the show. So uh, that was a little joke. And, but uh, we managed to do it. We each earned a dollar. After we paid for the cab and everything, we earned a dollar a piece for the band. Then he gave us another Sunday, and then he began to give us weekends. You know, we ended up playing like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday with different opening bands like uh, Talking Heads and Blondie and, uh, you know, the different bands that were coming up. It seemed like everybody found out about this place we were playing at. And there had been other bands and other acts that had played there, you know, sort of off the wall stuff. And he still booked uh, country western and uh, what is it like bubblegum stuff? Yes. But uh, we began to basically take over, and the kids started coming to the shows, and uh, the place was packed well before Patty Smith came in. Yes. And she brought another kind of, you know. Uh, brought it to another level with a lot of journalists. Well, journalists were coming down before she got there. There was a guy from England who uh, sent his reports into NME or the music maker or whatever it was. And uh, so the English kids were all excited about this new scene in New York. 
even before they'd heard the music, they'd heard about it through the press for like two years. So all the bands ended up getting signed, and we held out until uh, we got a deal we were comfortable with, or not comfortable with, maybe, but it was the best deal we were going to get. And we went with Electra and finally put out our first album, which was Marquee Moon. Yes. You know the rest of the story. Yes. But before that, your teen years, because you were sort of with a fellow guitarist from Brooklyn called... You know, I wrote a book (laughs) called Everything is Combustible. You can get it through Amazon or Barnes & Nobles or any other, you know, big bookseller. Yes. And uh, it recounts all of my adventures. I had a lot of great adventures. I, I was best friends with Jimi Hendrix's only guitar protege. And we used to play guitar together, and uh, not Jimmy and I, but he and Velvet was the guy's name, Velvet Turner, this black guy from Brooklyn, a teenager, who had found, sought out Jimi Hendrix, and they became, like, really good friends, best friends of a sort. He called Velvet his little brother. So I got to see a lot of Hendrix at the time. This was like 68, 69. And were you you particularly interested in that kind of the counterculture that was kind of happening, you know, because there had been 67 was the summer of love and there was kind of obviously... Oh, absolutely. I spent the summer of love in New York. I went to all the B-ins and love-ins in Central Park that they had. And uh, I went to a bunch of shows at the Hotel Diplomat or the, Fel- the Fillmore East. I, I was at the Fillmore East before it was a Fillmore East. It was called the Village Theater. I saw the Grateful Dead there. I saw the Doors there the first time they played. I saw the Jeff Beck group. I saw Allman Brothers. I saw, you know, all these bands from England and from all over that would play the Fillmore East. I went to that place, you know, pretty much every week. Yes. And then with Velvet, we, we went and saw The Who. Uh, the day they had that fire next, they had a big fire next door and they evacuated the theater, but Velvet and I didn't go and nobody caught us and we stayed behind backstage and ate the food and played the, uh, the ping pong machine. No, no. What are they called? Um, pinball machine. Pinball, yes. So Graham had provided because the big hit was Pinball Wizard. So anyway, I saw a lot of bands and, uh, you know, was able to get back. I was like an innocent, angelic-looking youngster who looked young for my age, and I was like 16, 17, 18. And so I got backstage a lot. I don't know how. I don't, you know, it was like a mystery, a magical mystery tour. And so obviously you made a massive leap between the ukulele and then sort of playing guitar with, you know, one of Jimi Hendrix's protégé. protégé. Um, so, yeah, so obviously you were quite obsessed throughout the 60s, kind of, you know, going down, up and down, oh, yeah. down the fret. I was absolutely obsessed that I'd be a world-renowned guitar player, even though I could hardly play the, the damn thing. Yes, I mean, what was the kind of, I mean, because um, I know you're a little bit younger than people like David Bowie and Lemmy from Motorhead, but when they used to talk about their kind of early musical people, they always mentioned Little Richard and then Elvis and, you know, and Eddie Cochran. Uh, yeah, and... I didn't go for rock and roll. 
I didn't go so much for rockabilly. I was waiting until 63, 64, when the Beatles came and the Rolling Stones. That's really the impetus to get me uh, going. Because yes. I realized that I, I wondered about the Beatles, like what was giving them the power to create such a worldwide sort of revolution in music. And then I, a couple, like a year later, I realized that everybody had a guitar. It was the guitar that was doing the talking, you know? Yes. So I decided I would play guitar. That's basically the impulse came from that. And it's kind of interesting because obviously you, you sort of, did you sort of touch on that whole beatnik thing with, you know, people like Jack Kerouac and, and Ginsberg, or, or was that something that you weren't that interested in at the time? Well, those were our older brothers, were like the beatniks. So we had some, we had some knowledge of it and hung around with some of them. But I like to say I was too young to be a beatnik and too old to be a hippie. And I was just caught in the middle. Yes. And when and when you sort of, that early period of the 70s, you know, that we had, in this country, we had glam rock, and then we had people like, um, I suppose Alice Cooper came along and David Bowie. Did did people like that sort of come onto your, um, your radar? I saw David Bowie, his Ziggy Stardust tour before he was well known in San Francisco. And there were like, it was a large place and there were only about 300 people there and most of them walked out when, when Bowie went down on Ronson and imitated uh, Palacio on him with the guitar. Yes. And, uh, it, you know, people were walking out saying, I'm not listening to no fag, stuff like that in San Francisco. The next m- couple months and he was like a huge star in L.A. You couldn't get a ticket to see him. Yeah. So I saw the meteoric rise of people, and I understood that that could could happen. I mean, what other guitar player were you sort of impressed with at that stage? Oh, every single guitar. You know, uh, I can't give you a list. It would go go on for an hour. But uh, all the the well known English guitarists, uh, the the. Uh, Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck and Eric Clapton and uh, Peter Green and uh, I had the Mayor Blues thing. I had a lot of records at the time, you know, when vinyl records were out. And, uh, you know, that's what I spent my money on. Yes. Those records of the British who were playing American blues and such. And I, that took me back to the American blues, the Chicago blues, like all the way back to Robert Johnson and stuff. So I began to be interested in that. And I, I passed through a jazz period, a classical period. I, I used to, to sit and play my guitar to uh, Miles Runs the Voodoo Down from Miles Davis's record with John McLaughlin, stuff like that. Yes. And I liked, uh, there was even a Winwood player I liked named Charles Lloyd, who was great. <laughs> Yeah. And did you, I mean, and also during the 70s, there was a huge amount of different scenes going on. You had that kind of West Coast kind of easy kind of listening, the Eagles, Fleetwood Mac, you know, when they, 
you know, when they had Stevie Nicks and uh, Lindsay Buckingham. And then you also had the prog scene, you know, with people like Yes and Genesis, Wishbone Ash, Barkley, James Harvest. So this kind of the, the kind of little stream, you know, the, this kind of scene that came from like the Nuggets period and then Iggy Pop and the Stooges. And then sort of started to yeah. go into this kind of world that was, we had Dr. Feelgood in this country and then people like the Damned, you had the Ramones. Were you were you sort of aware of all these different little scenes that were sort of happening at the time? And then you had those monster bands like Led Zeppelin and, and the rock scene. Yeah. Well, I was cognizant of all the different scenes. I was, of all the guitarists, I was not, excited about Prague. I just hated that kind of indulgence. But uh, everything else I liked, you know. Yes. And did you, I mean, did you feel like you were part of that kind of the punk world that was kind of like, because we've heard a lot about, you know, well, they, Max's Kansas City that was going to be in run, and then you had CBGBs. And New York at the time is kind of, has become sort of well-known as the type place where you know it was almost bankrupt, so they were bankrupt. So there was like lots of cheap housing, lots of kind of like artists move in, plus you know criminals and junkies and stuff like that. So it must have felt like quite an edgy time. Edgy, edgy. Yeah, I mean, it was a very exciting time, really. I mean, with CBGBs, we were building a a, a place from the ground up, and the, the ground contained like bums outside lying around because it was Skid Row, the Bowery, at a time when, you know, there were flop houses. There was a flop house above CBGB's and there used to be urine and wine spilled on the floor that would leak through the ceiling and come down and, like, onto the stage. It was so ridiculous. Yes, that must... uh, Hilly had a dog that would crap on the stage, stuff like that. Cleaned up dog poop too, and did it feel? But it was a different. Yeah, I'm sorry. I know. I was going to, and I was going to say, did it feel? You know, because you know, in Max's, you had the Andy Warhol scene and the superstars as well, and that must have felt like you were at the right place at the right time. Oh, for sure. I spent uh, six months, like every night, in Max's Kansas City back room. I became a regular there. Yeah, I loved it. It was fascinating, and I was drinking a lot at the time, so I was in the right place—a watering hole. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And with a lot of the bands that I've interviewed, you know, they normally have a, a kind of a five-year narrative. You know, especially they get together, they spend you know twelve, eighteen months rehearsing and practicing, and then they get mm. that kind of <clears throat> that kind of single that gets a bit of airplay by a DJ that likes them and gets them. Then they get the first album, more touring. Then that sort of second album can be a bit tricky. And any bands from the UK often find that if they ever come to America, the tour, they kind of, they come back broken, basically. And they that's often when they decided really? to quit. Yes, British bands yeah. coming to America never have much fun. I think it's quite hard. I think they, they're quite shocked and they're yeah, not quite... They're used- yeah, there's a culture shock. It's such a large country. I mean, we never conquered America as television. We, you know, we're very pop. We're much more popular in England and Europe than in America. In America, we were only uh, well respected and liked in the major cities. You know, New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, Detroit, 
Minneapolis, places like that. Um, we didn't crack the heartland, you know. No. I guess we didn't play enough country blues and bluegrass. No. We were too, like, from outer space, you know. Yeah. Wacky, wacky punk. And then people didn't call it punk. When we started, they didn't call it punk until these guys came down from uh, from Connecticut or something and started Punk Magazine, John Holstrom and Legs McNeil. And they began the punk, you know, calling it punk, and then the journalists put everybody in that boat. Yes, quite. That's journalists for you. And you know, what's your memory? When, when, you, when you were recording Marquee Moon... Did did you? Because it's quite an epic song and quite unusual. Unless you're a prog band, um, did that feel quite radical at the time? Well, it was what we, well, I mean. That was what we did. So it wasn't radical to us. But maybe if I put it against other things, I could see its radicality. But it was radical, you know, in in pop music. Yes. But, uh, I mean, we didn't feel like... I was very uh, honored when one of the major record companies passed on us saying, I can't sign these guys. This is not earth music. And I thought that was a compliment. Yes. But you, you obviously... I mean, were you kind of amazed with the kind of the feedback and the sort of the sudden rise to sort of not fame, but sort of influence and sort of suddenly everybody wants to know who this band is? I didn't think it was unusual. I expected it. From the very start, it was like I had run away and joined the circus. It was that exciting, you know? Yes. Uh, Or anybody else's dreams come true, you know? I dreamt of something and uh, made it a reality. So I was uh, tremendously excited by the whole thing. Yes, absolutely. And then when that was done and put to bed, so to speak, coming to the second album, what was that experience like? Well, for me, it wasn't as much fun because Tom Tom Berlant started to write songs in the studio, which meant that we would sort of jam and he would put lyrics on it and that would be the songs, you know. And we had a lot of songs in our live act that could have gone on the second record. We could have made a second record that was in the same sort of place as Marquee Moon, but uh, Tom didn't want to do that, you know. And... uh, didn't want to work with Andy Johns again. Didn't want, uh, you know, a lot of things. He mostly didn't want. That was his. Uh, he turned down a lot of a lot of possibilities for us, and uh, it was a real drag, and kind of embarrassing the way he uh, treated the press and his fans and uh, our fans. And you know, I couldn't. I couldn't really express my opinion about anything because the band had to have one political or one social voice. And basically Tom took that that position as the quote-unquote leader of the band, you know, and he was the, the, the principal songwriter and the leader of 
television, so there's no denying that. But uh, he passed up on major, major, major opportunities for us all through the whole career of television. You know, he would put his foot down and say no. So what are you going to do? Yes. One guy wants to be on a beach in Portland or Portugal, as he put it once. Yes. Do you think I wanted to play music? Maybe I'd be better off, you know, I'd have more enjoyment on a beach in Portugal. And I'm like, oh, brother. Yeah. So that was basically it. We were heading towards dissolution for a long time before, you know, we've actually disbanded for the first time. Yes, tricky one. And then you, you know, obviously, you know, punk had hit in sort of the UK, you know, quite big in 77. And that's when, you know, the next year of television of disbanded. But then your solo career, you sort of, you don't take, you know, you, you come, you come out with alchemy well, quite quickly. Yeah, I wanted to write stuff that was not at all like television for the first of my first record. I kind of you know, stepped away from that uh, kind of music and did a more poppy record, you know, more sentimental record. Uh, but I was really uh, strung out on drugs at the time, and the record company found out and Electra dropped me, and then I spiraled out of control for like two years, two, three years, until I got myself straightened out in uh, 84, so the early 80s were really the nadir of my adult life, you know. I was a junkie, and uh, that was terrible. Yes. You know, at the end. My God. So you had five years of being pretty well-wrecked. Pretty well-wrecked? Yes. Yes, definitely wrecked. I had men... men quite a few decades of being wrecked. Yes. Did you, I mean, when you sort of, in 84, did you say 84, 85, you started to get yourself cleaned up? Well, I got I got clean in uh, from October of 83. It took me till July to finally put everything down. Yeah. And then I was uh, what you might call clean and sober and got the opportunity to go to Sweden and make another record, which was called Field of Fire. And uh, that was another exciting time. I almost, I mean, I was signed to uh, A&M, except the deal fell through because of my, at that time, manager uh, asked for stuff, and the record company was like, can we get rid of this guy? And then they just thought, and he kept waving his little contract around, which turned out to be uh, not valid or not enforceable. And he, uh, you know, basically screwed the pooch on that one. Yeah. And I, I found out much later that the reason I didn't get signed at that time to a major was strictly his fault. Bad news. And he'll remain nameless. Yes, absolutely. But did you, I mean, did you sort of, when you were looking at these sort of the 80s and you were seeing other people, you know, doing things like, I don't know, Bruce Springsteen and, and you too, did you sort of feel, God, you needed to be in the game as well because, you know, of... Well, 
you know, A&M wanted to sign me, and they had Brian Adams, and uh, the, the Arena Rock was really big. And Field of Fire could have fit right in. And uh, so that was, and then there was this terrible business about uh, having a Swedish label, and they have to put, they wouldn't send imports to America, they sent them to England, and then England sent them to America, so by the time they got here, there weren't that many records to put in record stores, and uh, the cost was prohibitive. The record, the, the record was like 20 bucks, and every other record was like 8.99. So that damaged my career as well. I've had so many uh, openings in which, in which there have been some sort of dismantling of the uh, situation. You know, not always my fault, but uh, sometimes it was my fault. Yes, I'm I... not saying I'm not saying anything against uh, anybody. No. no, but then you know you I did. Could have been wiser. Yes, it's always true. But field, you had field of fire, and then you had real time quite soon after that, didn't you? Yeah, well, that's my manager, and he wanted to do a live record, and I thought you know live records really aren't the thing to do for a second record, and. Uh, but he insisted, and I got to do like, I did like three new songs on this record, and it was mostly a revisit of uh, Alchemy and some other stuff. And uh, people liked that record, so, um, you know, that's okay. Yes, absolutely. I mean, did you feel, because, you know, you had this kind of amazing ability and, and sort of the work with television, how were you coping emotionally, sort of not being able to, just sort of get your career to the next level or back to some level that you kind of had wanted? Well, you know, it was, it's frustrating for a lot of artists. I, I just think of myself as extraordinarily fortunate to have been in a band that, uh, you know, even if, even if we'd only put out one record, I mean, it was good enough to stand with all the great records in the world. And uh, so... You know, and the scene we created in CBGB's that led to everybody having a, you know, a chance was fantastic. And I, and I, uh, I guess I hobbled myself a couple of times, but I never, I never really blamed anything or anybody. You know, I wouldn't want to be as famous as, uh, you know, some people are where they can't walk down the street. And uh, I remember being on the subway one time and somebody, you know, I don't know, I might have been picking my nose and somebody yells over, hey, Richard, you know, great guitar, man, what's going on? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> I want to be anonymous, too. Yes. You know, I want to be able to uh, slip through, you know, the security guards, but I didn't want to be that crazily famous. Yes. And then, you know, because I, you know, I mean, you obviously met an awful lot of different people from different bands. I mean, some must have felt you yeah. know, enjoyable. And then I know you weren't, you didn't have the greatest experience with Johnny Lydon, did you? Johnny? I never, you know, I have no relationship with him whatsoever. I never even saw the Sex Pistols live. Yes. Nor did I want to. But they did you like tell they sounded like television did when we first started, you know, really. 
So, anyway. Yes, but I just... Well, I was not terrifically fond of them because they, they told some lies, you know? People were saying they were, you know, inventing this new social movement of punk. And really, it had started in New York. That was irritating. Yeah. And then the damned and, uh, you know, all the other bands that followed on that that kind of path. Did you feel there was a slight rivalry between that sort of American punk and the UK punk? Yes, there certainly was. But uh, the difference was that in, in England, you know, everybody's very political. And there's a great deal of social unrest between, you know, the caste system, I guess you'd call it, where people are on the dole. Yes. In America, it's very different. There isn't that. And, you know, if you look at all the records that came out of out of that movement, uh, you won't find really much of a political statement beyond Patty, a couple of Patti Smith songs. There yes. really was no political or uh, sociological statements out of the bands. It was mostly, you know, poetry in, in music. Yes. And did you, I mean, because you wrote, you know, you wrote your book a few years ago, did that feel like quite a sort of almost therapeutic experience to go through that process of sort of, you know, going back and analysing what happened and trying to sort of put I it into... I didn't analyse anything. I didn't analyse anything. I just reported it as factually as I could in my own life. And it was really good because now I don't have to remember all that stuff. I've kind of told my little tale. There's a part two, but I don't know if I'll write it. And, uh, you know, I'm just excited to be alive. You uh, were going to ask me what I'm doing now. It's like nothing because the, of the coronavirus. Everybody's hunkered down, and it's almost like a forced re- uh, retirement. Yes. For the musicians that I know. Yes, because you, you know, you did, you know, two albums kind of quite recently, Rosedale and then Countdown. You obviously, you yeah. know, it's still something that you, you're sort of enjoying doing. Has this lockdown sort of given you the space to think about what you will do next, you know, when, when this might hopefully be over in the next couple of years? Yeah, well, when it's over, I'll still be playing guitar, I hope that I'll be around and uh, I'd certainly like to do something. Yeah. Even if, you know, I spend a lot of time just being a lead guitar player with Matthew Sweet. I'm on like nine of his records. uh, And uh, John Doe, his first solo record from X. You know, so I've been a a hired hand too, and I enjoy that. Yeah. So if something came along that was right, I'd love to do it. I'd like to put out another record of my own as well with some different uh, different kind of stuff on it. I don't couldn't describe it, but you know, yeah, maybe not totally, you know, punky rock. Do you? I mean, because I did an interview with um, Gary Lucas, who who'd worked with um, various people, including. Uh, God, I can't remember his name now. But he did that big, um, big album, didn't he? Which everyone loved intensely. The one who did Hallelujah. Yeah, yes. I mean, do you, do you get, do you ever get together with other guitar players and and sort of 
swap notes. Do you ever get together with other guitar players to sort of, I don't know, get inspiration or or sort of support or or just kind of, um, yeah? Not so much. You know, I mean, I don't even barely listen to music on my own now. Nowadays, after uh, we started making music, then it was, and I had listened to music basically 24 hours out of the day, six 365 days a year for like over, you know, two decades. So I kind of got full up, you know, and uh, if I don't, I don't follow the newest music at all and haven't for a long time. No, I know. what I do. I mean, if you you could... what I hear. Yeah. And if you could have said something to your 18-year-old self, what would you do? What would you say? I wouldn't say anything. I'm the same as I was then. You just, you know, you, I don't have any kind of backward thinking where I think back like, oh, I, if I could have done this, I would have done that. Because, you know, reality is in, there. It's just there, and I don't argue with it. Yes. I don't wish it would be different. I don't pretend it could have been different. It, it was, uh, you know, it's the form of my life, and it constitutes who I am, everything that happened. Yes. The good and the bad. And what... People don't accept their own lives, and uh, it's a terrible thing. Yeah. Did you, did you always have that attitude, or did it come to you as, as with, with the years? No, I always had that attitude since I was two. You know, as far back as I could remember. I've been a, a, a person who's able to be alone, which is almost the exact opposite of loneliness. Yes. Know, being able to be with yourself is really important for most people. Well, I should say, you know, a lot of people can't be with themselves. They can't just sit down, for instance, and go inward and do nothing on, outside. They always got to be doing something and filling this hole that's in them. I think human beings have a hole in them, and they try to fill it with drugs and rock and roll and sex and uh, climbing the corporate ladder and all these other things. And it's just even God. You can't put God in that hole either because religion is just another form of, uh, you know, lunar. It's lunar, it's reflected light, it's not solar. Mm. Yes, that's true, actually. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, because there haven't been that many people and musicians. I think most of them become quite sort of, not schizophrenic, but they, they have that desperate urge, don't they, to be on stage and to be surrounded by people and to have that adrenaline. But you obviously have managed to sort of navigate that and feel that that isn't something that you need to draw on anymore. Exactly. No, I don't need to, I, I don't need to draw on that. I mean, I like it when I'm doing it, but it hasn't turned out to be the only thing that matters to me. Yes. And did you, and did you, and have you managed to stay clear, clean, for the last X amount of decades? Well, I've had relapses on alcohol, but, Nothing like I haven't done dope in forty-five years, so 
sober now, and I have been for quite some time. Yes. And uh, basically, it's that's I'm like 36, 36 years clean and sober, for the most part. Yes, that's always good. And just lastly, I mean, when occasionally by vacation. Pardon? Interrupted occasionally by, I'll say, vacations or adventures. Yes. Everything See, is a, I think everything is an adventure. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Very good. But did you, I mean, when you look, you know, I know you probably don't like looking back, but if you, you know, if, if there was one particular song or particular bit of guitar that you're proudest of, what would, what would you, what would you think, yeah, that's, that's the one that I really was on, on it. I really nailed that moment. You know, I have so many moments like that that uh, I couldn't pick out one. It would be ridiculous. It's like having children. We don't pick out one and discard the others or say, I like this one better than the other. You know, they're all equally valid in your entire career, so to say. Yes. They all have their own validity. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Well, anyway, look, Richard, this has been fantastic. Yeah. Thank you ever so much. Cool. And, um, right. and I much appreciate it. And let, me know when it's, let me know when it's coming out. I will. I'll send you a link as well. What you're going to do with it. Absolutely. Okay. Okay, then. Have a great day. Fantastic. Thanks. You too. Thank Cheers. you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. I know, I love putting those last bits in because it's always so awkward, but then it's interesting. That was me in conversation with Richard Lloyd. Yes, he of television fame, but you'd have just heard the interview, so you'll know all about it. Anyway, thank you ever so much. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show, and uh, it's there. And also, I've been archiving all these um, yes, interviews and my playlist on the radio. So uh, you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just to see 86 show again. There you go. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe and uh, tune in again. <laughs>